All right, why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. And the message is entitled, The Righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul uh, provided an autobiographical uh, biography of his past life before Christ regarding his own righteousness to stand justified before God in verses 4 through 7 that was characterized by the confession of Paul in contrast to the righteousness of the Judaizers. He said he surpassed them. In verse 5 and 6, the credentials of Paul in comparison to the righteousness of the Judaizers, he humbled them. And then in verse 7, the conclusion of Paul, in conjunction to the righteousness of the Judaizers, he rejected them. He could have competed with them, but that wasn't the competition. It was against him and God. God was holy. Paul was sinful. So no righteousness that is produced here on earth can qualify that, and he rejects it altogether, as well as the Judaizers. As you know there, Paul mentions seven things pertaining to his inheritance and merited righteousness in that text, specifically in verse 5 and 6. Now Paul is going to balance it out by mentioning seven things he gains in Christ. In our text here, verse 8 through 11, Paul declared his settled conviction about the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it's characterized by three things. Let me read verse 8 through 11. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, or of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, and that I may know him the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's settled conviction declared here about the righteousness of Jesus Christ, characterized by the following. First, Paul's divine choice declared, the first part of eight. Second, Paul's desired righteousness defined, Last part of eight and nine. And then finally, Paul's determined purpose described in verse 11. He begins here, Paul's divine choice declared. Verse eight, Paul the apostle, notice, chooses the superior righteousness of Christ to that um, very present day that he was writing. Nothing had changed, as we'll see. He says, for yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Paul here affirms the past decision. He had just stated in verse 7 that he had counted all his inherited and merited righteousness under the law a loss for Christ. Listen to the words, yet indeed, all those things were a loss. A damage to the justifi- to be justified before God, as verse 7 says. They didn't serve any purpose. They were counterfeits. They were all based on having confidence in the ability of the flesh, works and deeds, to be justified before God. Be they moral, be they ethical. The phrase, yet indeed, is for emphasis here. The phrase... Rather 
indeed, could be translated even, but indeed, or yes, rather. I like the old King James. It says, yes, doubtless. Giving an emphatic affirmation about Paul's choosing the righteousness of Christ over the righteousness of man. As if you affirm me, son, are you, are you serious? That's right. Paul confirmed, notice, his past decision by comparative value. He says, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The things of inferior value are the works of man for justification. Paul said, what things were gained to me. Now he says, all things. He keeps repeating and enlarging it as we move along. Kind of like what James did in his book. The phrase, I also count, means to consider, to deem. To think or to esteem, as in verse 7, is the same word. The idea is one of making a value judgment between the two. The tense is the perfect indicative, ongoing and progressive. I still consider all those things having no value and ongoing. I did it back then when I was born again. And it's still my position. The middle voice here specifies Paul is making this decision. Not someone else. He does it. The clear understanding being that one thing is helpful and profitable. The others, not at all. This took place again by divine illumination on the Damascus Road. When he had chosen the superior righteousness of Christ and still did 30 years later. How about you? Change your mind a little bit? Found anything better? The word lost there, zaima, we have stated, means damage. As in verse 7. We noted that the word is similar to a bookkeeper's ledger where the accountant would erase the word gains or credit and write in the words loss or debt. This is the words that Paul is using here. He will progress his description of the worthlessness of all things. Notice Paul also confirmed his past decision by personal experience and relationship for the knowledge of Christ my Lord. The thing of superior value is the work of Christ for justification. The word excellent means to hold beyond or over, better, higher, and supreme, surpassing superior quality. You can't get any better. Paul has not come across anything more excellent than the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ prior to his 30 years or after his conversion. We've studied this word knowledge before gnosis. It means primarily the seeking to know. An inquiry, investigation, especially a spiritual truth here. 
This is not mere intellectual knowledge about a person. You know, we look at a movie star we're familiar with. Oh, yeah, that's when we give his name. We know who he is and about him, but we don't know him. That's just mere information. This is intimate relational knowledge that bound Paul and Christ by the atoning work of justification. The word is used of a husband who's to dwell with his wife according to knowledge. Gnosis, 1 Peter 3, 7. You see, the personal loving binding of Paul and Christ is stated by the phrase, My Lord. The word Lord, as you know, curios means master, husband, owner. The one who orders his life. The one through whom he lives his life. The law and works were very impersonal and mechanical. Now take note, the Apostle Paul saw the advantage of Christ's righteousness now here in verse 8. Paul became very aware of the false hope he held onto as a Pharisee. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He no longer saw himself in his own righteousness and keeps repeating that to stand before Christ in his own righteousness was a great disadvantage. The phrase suffered the loss again means to affect with damage and receive injury. Any person who tries to stand before God on their own righteousness or works adds to their own hurt, their own damage. This awareness occurred on the Damascus Road again by divine illumination. The tense is an indicative errors passive. Any errors has always happened in the past. But it's active. It keeps going. So he's literally describing what he experienced on the Damascus Road in this text. He's not saying that he gave up all these things for Christ as a great sacrifice and denial of self. This would contradict all Paul has stated. This would contradict the comparative value of Christ to the damage and work of the deeds for self-justification. Paul was able to properly pass or to assess the inferiority of man's righteousness. He says, and count them as rubbish. Wow. He now progressed the description of the deceptive hindrance of any work indeed to be justified before God. He counted all things lost. Same words before, damage. He now counted all things as rubbish, which means refuse. It could also be used for excrement or a half-eaten corpse. I like the New King James. He translates it dung. Isaiah says, Our righteousness is the filthy rags, a menstrual garment. Isaiah 64, 6. Paul saw exactly what self-righteousness is all about, to be justified before God. It is worth it. It stinks. It is an insult to God. That's why no one can boast, ladies and gentlemen. I don't care who you are here tonight. 
you and I do not merit any present before God unless it's through the justification and atonement of Jesus Christ. No one else. It's like trying to pay your bills with um, phony bills, counterfeits, worthless. If you are a religious person, you need to know that um, you are not justified before God regardless of your deep devotion and amount of benevolent works that benefit people. Be you uh, a Mormon and you've done all you have needed to do for your mission work on your bike in two years. Be you a Jehovah Witness and you have put on hundreds of hours on the corners or knocking on doors. Be you a Catholic devoted to Mary, praying for the saints and virgins and still falling prey to the dogmas of Rome while calling yourself still a Christian. Wow. I know I shouldn't have come tonight. Hmm. Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven and earth given among men which we must be saved. God, to me, is very, very narrow-minded. And um, I don't think I can change his mind. If you have come to Christ, but you're not trusting in Christ alone for your justification before God, then you are, in effect, insulting God if you still pray to Mary or the saints. Or any other thing that you used to believe in if you depend on that. If you still think that people will get into heaven because they are good moral or ethical then you really don't believe the gospel you're just comparing yourself to someone else and you seem to come out a little better than them or maybe you're shocked and they come out better than you so they gotta be good so they gotta go to heaven right that's not what the bible teaches for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. That's why Christ had to die. No one else. If you're a non-believer and you are placing your hope that there is no heaven or hell, God or the devil, man, are you going to be shocked the second you take your last breath. When I was in the world, there was a group of blood, sweat, and tears. They had a song, I, I pray there's a heaven. I hope there's no hell. Well, they, they, they know. A lot of people who, um, John Lennon, imagine no heaven, no hell, no country, nothing to live for, nothing to die for. What is that? 
He knows there is a heaven and a hell. Too late. Hmm. As you enter eternity to be separated from God, your philosophy will not matter. Your worldview. As you will have to give an account for all your sins they ever committed. As you are sentenced by Jesus to be punished for those sins that could have been forgiven had you trusted Christ. Wow. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. No God at all. Wow. Paul's divine choice declared Christ's righteousness superior gaining Christ. That's a good choice. Notice secondly here at the end of verse 8 and verse 9. We have Paul's desired righteousness now defined. The Apostle Paul revealed the purpose behind his past decision to give up on his own righteousness. Listen to his words. That I may gain Christ. Paul gained the righteousness of the person of the Messiah. The word that, henna, is called a purpose clause. The title Christ here is the anointed Messiah. This is the purpose. The one promised to Adam, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3, 15. He having accepted the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, that he became sin for us, died for our sins, and became the Lamb of God to take away our sins. That's 1 John 1, 29 and 1 John 2, 2. The propitiation. That he was raised from the dead, having purged us from our sins, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 1, 3 says. That he alone can justify sinners before God through the atonement of the cross. This is the purpose clause. Notice Paul dismissed the false for the true value before God. All he had trusted in as a Pharisee to be accepted by God was refuse, a pile of manure. Now, he didn't think like that before the Damascus Road. All he gained now, trusted in as a Christian, was the gain of Christ to be accepted before God. Nothing else. Notice in verse 9 there, the Apostle Paul revealed the outcome of his past decision and purpose of gaining Christ. Paul gave the expectation, ready for it, and be found in him. Be found in him. The word found means to come upon or to meet with. The idea is to be in connection with. The tense is again the error is passive, indicating the Damascus road. Paul said, Lord, what do you want me to do, Lord? Acts 9, 6. He's pointing back to the Damascus road. The phrase to be found in him is describing his new position 
through the new birth. Paul has spent living all his life as a righteous Jew, as you know. And Paul had studied under Gamaliel for years as a zealous Jew. Paul one day was on his way to Damascus to incarcerate Christians. And in an instance, all those years of learning, all those years of all the, uh, uh, the inherited righteousness and merited righteousness, all those years of dedication in one instant, saw the insult of his own righteousness, rejected it, and accepted Christ's righteousness, and was born again, just as it happened to you, as you heard the gospel, and the Spirit of God opened your eyes. Wow. The phrase in him and in Christ appears two times in this verse. In, in, in. In connection, in union. Abiding in him. The vine and the branches. In Christ Jesus is a favorite phrase of Paul to describe our position before God. And it's found some 27 times in the epistle to the Ephesians that says that we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Notice Paul declared the explanation next. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. The verb having, again, is the present active tense in the negative, not relying on the righteousness of his past life. He wanted to be clear to all that he was rejecting his trust in all his own inherited and merited works of practice righteousness to be justified before God. Verse 4 and 6 that he pointed to. Paul does not want to be misunderstood. The personal works of Paul are indicated by the phrase, my own. The identity of the works is the law. He wanted to be clear the law made no one righteous, but guilty and defenseless before God. Then notice Paul expressed the celebration, but that which is through faith in Christ. The word faith means conviction of the truth of anything that is being discussed or told you. Faith is the conviction that what the Bible reveals is the absolute truth of God on whatever matter he addresses or deals with. So if what a person believes is not found in the Bible, or contradicts the Bible, it is not biblical faith. It is foolishness, a human opinion. But it's not God's truth. Real simple. That's why I always tell you the word of God is the plumb line. Today, the, much of the church is very subjective in their interpretation of Scripture and in their study of Scripture. 
They do not believe that we can learn any objective truth from the Bible. Read some of the new uh, emergent church, quote, quote, leaders and pastors and scholars. And so, to them, everything is relative, subjective, often contradicting the Word of God. The faith Paul is talking about, notice, is in Christ. That he is God who became man. He believes that's what the Bible teaches. He believes that. It's true. That he is the Christ, the Messiah of God, promised to Adam as well as Israel. That forgiveness of sins and salvation comes only through him, the Redeemer and Savior of the world. That he accomplished the necessary and vicarious atonement for the sins of the world on the cross. He believes all this. This is what his faith is based on. The obvious contrast to this point cannot be missed. Grace and faith. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We are saved through grace, that not of ourself. It's a gift of God. By grace through faith. Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So what the prophets prophesied about now is being revealed fully and clearly in the New Testament. The other contrast is long works. Grace and faith against long works. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20 The law accuses us. The law says we are lawbreakers. If we were not lawbreakers, we wouldn't need any laws. That's why there's speed limits. That's why there's stop signs. That's why some curves have red on them or green or yellow. <laughs> That's why there's Locks on front doors and cars. Because we're lawbreakers. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Romans 3.28. That's the whole crux of Romans. The thesis. Notice Paul stated the clarification next. The righteousness which is from God by faith. God the Father is the source of all the righteousness of Christ for the justification of sinners. The Father is the first person of the Godhead. God the Son is the channel of the righteousness provided by the Father. The Son is the second person of the Godhead. And God the Holy Spirit is the agent to convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment, the Holy Spirit being the third person of the Godhead. 
Now, though the Spirit is not mentioned here, he's been mentioned in chapter 1, verse 19, 2, 1, and 3, 3. All three are active in the plan of salvation. All have their place. You know, the person of Christ Jesus is not a myth or a legend. But God becoming man. You cannot come to that conclusion by your intellectual abilities or your academic endeavors. It must be by God's Holy Spirit as, they, as he gives you an opportunity to realize and he gives you a choice to receive or to reject. It is God's mercy and grace who does that. God initiates, we respond. Faith comes by hearing him by the word of God. The gospels proclaim. That's why I went to a funeral yesterday and uh, it was in one of these emergent churches and and they just danced around the Lord. You know, he says, yes, yeah, you know, if you want your life, you know, change this and that. But they wouldn't use the word sin. They wouldn't use the word repentance. None of this kind of stuff. It's like, you know, it's a hot potato or something. Listen, this pulpit is there's to have a proclamation, the gospel to be proclaimed. It's the greatest news. It's to be proclaimed so that people are confronted. The church of Jesus Christ and people that come into a church that is Jesus Christ, they will look at a mirror and they will see exactly who they are and it's not going to be pretty. But today's Christians don't want a mirror. They want a selfie. So they feel uncomfortable hearing about how rotten they are. So they go find a selfie church. Or they tell them how great they are. Wow. He's a real person. Flesh and bone and blood. He lived on the earth. Paul had not hallucinated out there on the way to Damascus. Jesus hungered. He thirsted. He cried. He bled. And he died. Just like you and I. First John 1 John 1.1 says, That which was from the beginning, speaking of Christ, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, literally gazed upon him. We have looked upon and our hands have handled the word of life. A real person, because the Gnostics were teaching that Jesus was kind of like a phantom. He wouldn't leave footprints in the sand and, you know, weird. This world of humanity does not deserve the person of Jesus, but the Father gave him as a sacrifice for our sins. The motive of God was his love for this world, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, you have to look and examine the world. It's not a very lovely place. I just um, was watching a video of this incredible man who was in special forces. He's probably in his 50s and... His whole mission now is to be in Afghanistan, Iraq, and to rescue women and children under the um, uh, 
Taliban and the sex slave trade and all, everything. And as I looked at this thing, there's two other men with him, two other soldiers with a special force or something, and they're behind a tank. And as you look forward, you see piles of things. You might think they were rags, but they were bodies of women and children. And they heard a cry of a little girl, maybe four or five years old, maybe a little longer, maybe five or six, something like that. And these two guys open up to cover him, and he runs in the midst of fire to grab that little girl. And he runs back with her. This is an evil world. While men are trying to kill him and that little girl. Give that video to the university professors and the millennial liberals when they think Islam is a peaceful religion. It is a bad, bad, evil world, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just lucky I wasn't God. He is so different than us. He loved the world. Wow. Jesus laid down his life of his own will, John ten eighteen says. Paul puts it this way, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed that in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. He picks it up completely also in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 24. The world considers the gospel as foolishness, yet it is the wisdom of God, Paul says, the hope of glory to lost man. Paul understood the immense value and importance of preaching the gospel. That's why in Romans 1, 16 through 17, that is the proposition of that whole book right there. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then also for the Greek. For in it, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith, and he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. And he takes that propositional truth and he expounds it from every angle. It's an incredible book, the book of Romans. Paul calls Jesus God's indescribable gift to man in 2 Corinthians 9.15. And he does it in the context of, of, of giving money for the poor, remember, in Jerusalem. He says, now, you know, uh, we, you're going to give this now. But what is that to God's indescribable gift? Whatever we can give is very little compared to what God gave to us. He gave us a son. Wow. How do you compare that? You don't. You don't. Paul's desired righteousness defined as through faith in Christ. Completely. Notice thirdly, Paul's determined purpose described here. Verse 10 and 11. Now, these two verses describe imparted righteousness through a sanctified life and yielding to the Holy Spirit. 
they describe a person who is hungry for the things of God. This is Paul's application for us in view of the imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is our justification. And then he gives us imparted righteousness, sanctification to live that out. Imputed, justification, imparted to live out the life. Sanctified. The first is imputed. What follows is imparted to live that life. Notice verse 10 at the end. The Apostle Paul determined to experience a personal, intimate, ongoing relationship with Jesus. That I may know him. Paul was not speaking again of mere intellectual knowledge, as we've stated. The word know is gnosko, and it means to, um, to know, to come to know, to perceive, recognize, and understand. The context is a person, not mere information. The personal pronoun him refers to Christ Jesus. And the word is used often in the New Testament... Frequently, it indicates the relationship between the person knowing and the object known, resulting in value to one who knows, establishing a relationship. The word is used for the word in the Old Testament for sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, meaning his wife and husband, as well as the New Testament. The most intimate knowledge you could have. The tense, again, is the eros active. Eros meaning in the past, but the active continually. Once again, he's dealing with the Damascus Road. All of this, he's describing what took place immediately at the Damascus Road and has continued to be his personal experience. The active indicates that it has continued for the past 30 years. Notice the Apostle Paul determined to experience the power of the risen life. The power of the resurrection, he says. Paul came to know the power of Christ's resurrection once again in the Damascus Road. Back in Acts 9, 4 through 6, he saw a light from heaven and fell to the ground, hearing a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 3 and 4 of Acts 9. He asked, Who are you, Lord? Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, verse 5 says. He's having a conversation with God. Instantly, he can hear he can perceive, he can understand. So he trembled and astonished, or trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do for success. He there and then came to know by personal experience the potential of the new life to be set free from sin nature and be a new creature by the power of the resurrection. Immediately, 
Wow. He went in and met Ananias, received his sight, was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then baptized in water in verse 7 and 10 of chapter 9 of Acts. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogue that he was the Son of God, both Jew and the kings of the king Eretus tried to kill him, so he fled to Jerusalem as they led him down the basket, down the wall. And Barnabas took a chance on him in Acts 9, 11 through 30, and he introduced them to Peter and James, and uh, he didn't see or talk to any other, he said. But this was all the power of the gospel, the resurrection. Paul was a different man now. He didn't come back as a Pharisee. He didn't come back as a Judaizer. He didn't come back teaching and demanding the law. Notice Paul continued to know by personal experience the power of Christ's resurrection through his life. Immediate change, eras tense. And it kept going. He spent three years in Arabia being discipled by Jesus, as you know. His own testimony in Galatians 1, 16 through 18. The power to understand by the Holy Spirit. To live. To learn. He was a faithful witness preaching the gospel in Damascus and the surrounding regions, we are told. For three years, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He was being discipled by Jesus. He was preaching around there. When he got to Jerusalem, he preached Christ and the Jews tried to kill him, so they sent him to Tarsus, Acts 9.30 says. Paul was too hot to handle. <laughs> All right, kill him. He faithfully went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by faith to the churches of Judea, we are told, hearing only he who formerly persecuted does now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy and they glorified God and me. Galatians 1, 21 through 24 says. You see, he continued to experience the power of the resurrection to live the life of Christ. Radical. Nine years later, Barnabas sought Paul out and brought him to Antioch to disciple many converts. That is where the first were called Christians, Acts eleven twenty five through 26 says. Then there were three missionary journeys that Paul took to preach and plant churches. All by the power of the resurrection. Just like you. Experienced it. Imputed righteousness. For just justification. And you've trusted the power of the resurrection. To let you live from day to day. Week to week. Month to month. Year to year. The Christ like life. 
Then notice the Apostle Paul determined to experience oneness with Jesus in the difficult times also. So the positive, now the negative. To know the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul placed the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering together. There is only one article in the Greek here for both. It's not the power of the resurrection and then secondly the fellowship of suffering. No, they both are together. The power of his resurrection is the able empowerment for the suffering of Christ. You can't suffer without the power of the resurrection. <laughs> Impossible. Paul is saying that the fellowship of Christ's sufferings were experienced by him again on the Damascus road by the power of the resurrection. The word fellowship, koinonia, as you know, is a very rich word. Oneness, participation, commonness. The word is used for communion. The word is used for contributions or money giving. Uh, it's used for the uh, believer's interaction in the body and with each other. In the context of the word, suffering means um, misfortunes, calamities, afflictions, persecutions for being a Christian or being in connection to or living for Christ. Blessed are you when all men speak evil of you and persecute you for my name's sake. Not because you're obnoxious. If you get persecuted because you're obnoxious, don't blame Jesus. Don't try to make that a spiritual persecution. Immediately, Paul experienced the suffering of denying his sin nature. He was now living for Christ, not self. He couldn't just throw people in jail anymore. He couldn't smack them. He couldn't kill them if they rejected him or the gospel. Those were the old days. You talk about radical. <laughs> You talk about power of the resurrection. Paul continued to know by personal experience the sufferings of Christ by the power of Christ's resurrection through his life. He was under persecution by the Jews and the king. He read us there at Damascus, as we said, and Jerusalem. How did he do that? He was the most popular. He was the most sought out. He was the most admired. Now they're spitting at him. Call him a dog, probably. Hmm. He suffered tremendously at the hands of the Jews and in the mission field, being in prison, shipwrecked, beat with rods, Five times 40 stripes by the Jews. Chased out of cities. <laughs> he mentions some of those things in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 through 11, where they almost gave up of life. They thought they were dead, but God delivered them. In Second Corinthians 4, 8 through 12, and in Second Corinthians 11, 24 through 27, that's where we get the greatest list of his sufferings and persecutions that he ever experienced. Because he's dealing with spiritual teenagers with the Corinthians <laughs> and he says you've made me both like a fool <laughs> hmm. notice Paul the apostle determined 
this would result in being Christ-like. The end of 10 and verse 11. Paul qualified knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, for the purpose and goal, first, of being conformed to his death. To dis- he described an ongoing process by the word here, conformed. It means to be fashioned, to be made like in appearance. The press and middle voice, again, ongoing by the person's own obedience and yielding. This form of the word appears one of the time in the New Testament to indicate God's purpose behind our predestination. Listen, Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. No transformation and confirmation and a predestination. If you're a child of God, you're predestined to be conformed, transformed, to be more like Christ. If that's not happening, what, what do you do with predestination? Now, predestination doesn't force you to be conformed. Predestination just tells you that you have the ability to be conformed. It's a choice. He's talking about an ongoing denial of self and the old manner of life of the old man. Being like Jesus, his death, his denial of self. By the power of the resurrection, resisting sin and temptations. By the power of the resurrection, not thinking primarily about self. Defending self, avenging self, or being more like Christ. Being transformed in our spiritual lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the conclusion of all the doctrine there of the righteousness of Christ for justification. Present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him which is a reasonable service. And be not fashioned to this world system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is a good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Wow. John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. John 3.30. So it's becoming more like Christ. This is our goal. This is our responsibility. But notice Paul qualifies knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, for the purpose and goal, secondly, to be raised from the dead. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, verse 11. Paul is using the word if, but it doesn't imply any doubt about his confidence in being raised himself for it would contradict his previous words in verse in chapter 1 verse 21 he said for to me to live is Christ and die is gain so he's not bringing doubt or he'd be contradicting philippians 1:6 being confident of this very thing that he was begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ so he's not doubting that he's going to be raised The affirmation is by the word attain. It means to come to or arrive. 
The tense again is the aorist active. The tense in the aorist active, remember, indicates the past and ongoing, which is kind of interesting here. This means that Paul saw the new birth on the Damascus Road that he experienced, the beginning process of his ultimate resurrection. You ever think about that? Romans says we have been raised in Christ in the power of the resurrection, but right now we're still in this physical body. But we're headed for resurrection. So you could literally say that when you're born again, it's the beginning process of the ultimate resurrection, right? You're in process. That's what he's saying here. The confirmation is indicated by the phrase, the resurrection from the dead. The word resurrection, ex anastasin. Not just anastasin, resurrection, but ex out from the dead. Jesus wasn't just, you know, uh, when, when Jairus' daughter was raised, she was raised from the dead, not out from the dead. That's glorification. To be raised, she had to die again. We will be raised out from the dead in a glorified body. There's a difference. This is the final step in a life of being conformed to the death of Christ. Our body will be raised just like the body of Jesus. Like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Changed. Every believer is born into warfare, I've told you often. So we must put on the spiritual armor that God has provided in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. We must understand that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. Mighty in God, pulling down strongholds, bringing every thought into captivity that comes against the knowledge of God and obedience to Christ in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. We must be filled continually with the Spirit of God, baptized, Ephesians 5, 18. We must understand that Satan roars, roams around like a lion seeking whom he may devour in 1 Peter 5, 8. We're to yield to his divine power that has been given to us all things pertain to life and godliness that we can escape the corruption of this world through the divine nature in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Every believer will experience the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Paul told Timothy, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh, listen, has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So when you and I resist sin and don't yield to sin, we are literally dying spiritually. We're experiencing death. We're giving death to our flesh. Our flesh wants to live in that darkness. 
Peter again says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice in the extent that you, partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. First Peter four, twelve through thirteen. Paul calls it the crucified life in Galatians two twenty. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A total living for Christ. Wow. You see, every believer will be raised out from the dead to the resurrected body, just like the one Jesus had. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 20. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we, are, we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable or to be pitied. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. First fruit, the example of what's coming ahead. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 3 through 4. Listen to Paul. Listen to Paul as he talks to the Thessalonians. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. He's talking about the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain, uh, will, will remain, uh, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, listen, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Who is the them, the bodies that are in the grave? The minute you die, you're instantly present, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. What do you win? I don't know. Your body is waiting to be resurrected. When the rapture happens, my body, if I'm alive, you're alive, will be transformed immediately, and we'll be caught up with them, the dead corpses. They will be coming down to meet their bodies. We will be transformed as we're going up. Instantly. Paul's determined purpose described to live and be raised like Christ. Wow. This is Paul's settled conviction about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Characterized, characterized by these three things, Paul's divine choice declares Christ's righteousness superior by gaining Christ. Gaining Christ. Paul's desire, righteousness defined as through faith in Christ. And Paul's determined purpose described here to live and be raised like Christ. From the Damascus Road to the present day, nothing had changed. The power of God. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We thank you for this time. We praise you for your goodness. We pray, Lord, for anybody who's listening, Lord, that your hand be upon them. You would minister their hearts. And, Lord, they would call on your name. And just as you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins.
to call upon His name, that He would allow you to experience Him personally in the new birth, the power of the resurrection, the ability to live the power of His sufferings, the one is the extension of the other, and that your sins might be forgiven. If you're here tonight, this is your prayer to Him, not to us. And He's going to forgive you, justify you, and enable you to be more like Christ each day. This is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.